0: Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach. I run Strength Guild, also the Barbell Open, which is on its way through its first season, and a bunch of other things. I coach athletes, I coach people, coach myself.
2: All right. (laughs) Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, I teach for GLOBE. University, I uh, have my own business, Extreme Human Performance, do a bunch of other projects, did the course certification for Eat to Perform, and other fun stuff. Right on. You know, we
0: sometimes we do achievements. I'm going to throw one out. This is not going to impress any competitive lifters, but I drug my ass into the gym three nights this past week, or it wouldn't have happened at all. <clears throat> you know, it's one of those times where you go in. Phil, I think you mentioned something about this before. Like, <sighs> almost like. I don't know. You're on the verge of hurting yourself because, you know, mm-hmm. you just have nothing to offer, kind of. And so you got to kind of make that decision. Do I just walk out of here or not? So I just did mm-hmm. really wimpy-ass stuff. But you know what? I, I kept up the fre- – like my number one goal right now is frequency, you know, mm-hmm. three to four days per week no matter what. So I, I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. I'm taking I'm yeah. taking uh, kudos <laughs> for dragging my butt in there <laughs> nice. because it was ugly, but it yeah. happened. Oh.
2: You just do some higher rep stuff then, or?
0: Um, actually, last night, yeah, I, I did weird stuff. I, I did a, a double length cardio session because I'm just detrained, and oh. with with my knee that I hurt over the summer, I really I got to be careful what I even choose to do with that. But and then I did get ready for it. You had to ask, but <laughs> I, I did uh, just back and forth supersets of quad extensions and hamstring curls. I've never I, oh, I haven't yeah. done those in so long. I thought, well, maybe mm-hmm. I'll hit some weird angle or supporting a sister's muscle. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but
2: it happened. So yeah, well, sometimes you just need to get some tension on the muscle and go from there and do something that's not going to you know beat the crap out of you entirely, so you can do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm definitely going back in this morning. Uh, yeah, I just got the, a new six month membership, so you know, got to use it. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Put the pressure. <laughs> Like you I said, coach bad.
1: yourself, kind of, you know.
0: Because <laughs> uh, I have weights in my basement, but I, I don't achieve the same thing at home. I just don't. Yeah. Okay. In fact, you know what? That kind of is will segue into our first news bit here. Um, just because, like I said, I'm trying to keep up the frequency so I don't become completely sedentary despite the demands of school right now. You know, Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, This first one, actually, uh, my wife Kelly sent me. It's from NPR, National Public Radio. Uh, Catherine Hobson wrote a piece called Walking, and I should should add, and Strength Training, because they kind of left that part out. But walking fends off loss of mobility, and it's not too late to start. So it talks about how previous research has suggested that exercise can improve memory and reverse muscle loss in older adults. Among other benefits, uh, what the this particular study that she's talking about here? Uh, researchers took more than sixteen hundred sedentary people, and I pulled the actual paper here from um, Pahor and colleagues, P A H O R. It was in Jama, Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, Stephen Blair is on the paper; very famous mm. epidemiologist. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, they had to actually score poorly on some functional, you know, tests, and they were at moderate disability. So you're talking about some older people here, 70 to 89 years of age who had some functional limitations. Um, they basically aimed for 150 minutes of uh, aerobic activity every week. The walking was the cornerstone of the program, according to Thomas Gill, professor of geriatrics at Yale. Um, but then it says, as well as strength, flexibility, and balance training. And I thought, well, why are you focusing so much on the walking? I mean, I know, I get that's duration-wise, that's probably the most. Um, but anyway, they also included some strength training. So Maybe this is a study for listeners' moms, you know, or, or grandpa <laughs> or something. But um, the study followed participants for 2.7 years, <laughs> and then they tracked how many ended up with serious mobility disabilities. Which they defined as being unable to walk a quarter mile, and there was a 25 percent uh, reduction in the exercisers versus a group that just got sort of generalized aging education. You know, which includes stuff like nutrition, how to navigate the healthcare system, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, it says the program that they did basically followed the government's recommendations. Again, 150 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise a week plus two strength training sessions. So what jumped out at me about this was in a lot we've, – we've talked about this over the years. You know, walking to um, – if you want to burn some fat or just kind of keep yourself loosed, loose and mobile, walking plus strength training is a nice approach. And here they're using it oh, with, yeah. with older people. Um, it says the Centers for Disease Control – Say that only eight percent of older adults do the suggested amount of strength training. Wow, wow, that's, that's much lower than I
2: thought it was going to be.
0: That's really low. Uh, it says many believe that older age is for relaxing and that physical activity is somehow dangerous or unnatural. Oh, geez, and again, that's in the older, you know, older folks. It's a generational thing, apparently. So, I pulled the paper. It's called Effect of Structured Physical Activity on Prevention of Major Mobility Disability in Older Adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the paper starts off by saying there's limited evidence that physical activity can help with mobility disability. That's, hmm. that's a pretty bold statement. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, that, yeah. m- maybe it's not documented well enough in the literature, but I would think there's an enormous amount of literature on how exercise can prevent mobility problems. Uh, Anyway, to test the hypothesis that a long-term structured physical activity program is more effective than a health education program, you know, they undertook what they did. It says persistent mobility disability was experienced by 120 out of 818 physical activity participants, so 14.7%, while the persistent mobility disability was uh, 19.8% in the ones who didn't do the physical activity. Uh, it did say the serious adverse events were slightly higher in the ones who did the the cardio and strength training and whatnot, uh, but the odds ratio, the risk ratio, was only 1.08, so essentially the same. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, they did they used RPE uh, to determine their intensity, so they were walking at a moderate RPE, and then they were they did some uh, ankle weights and different kinds of you know just resistance of the lower body mostly. And uh, at a moderate to slightly higher than moderate uh, perceived exertion. So, like I said, I know some people are like, well, that's, you know, Lowry's going off by old people. But here's me just (laughs) complaining at the beginning of the show, you know, that I'm, as my joints are, I'm trying to keep my joints from falling apart. I'm just trying to keep my, you know, uh, frequency up and stuff. So, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe science finally has to document this stuff. But I'm glad (laughs) they did walking plus strength training. I feel like vindicated.
1: Yeah, I think a big part of it too is people mix up flexibility and mobility. Mm -hmm. And a big player in mobility is actual strength. You know, you can be flexible as you want to be, but if you don't have the strength to to be mobile, (laughs) you're not mobile. Yeah. So, you know,
2: yeah, and it also goes without saying that you can start at any age. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, my, my mom up until recently, until, man, as long as I can remember, had never done any like formal exercise at all. And, I think it's been four and a half months now. She's been going to the the gym and for two days a week and working with a trainer. And mm-hmm. oh, she wow. did a trap bar deadlift with ninety five pounds for five reps the other day. So there you go. You know, yeah. I can't
0: I can't tell you how youth inducing strength training is. Mm-hmm. You know, the right yes. kind of strength training. I know so many guys. I heard a guy in the gym yesterday say something about being forty nine years old. I would never have guessed that. Right. Meanwhile, I donated blood last week and the guy next to me, some old man came in next to me and sat down and they're like, when were you born? He says, yeah, 1978. I'm like, oh, my God. He's he's like 10 years younger than I am. And he's an old man. So I don't know what that says about me, but you you get the point. It's like Mm -hmm. it's not just mobility. It's vibrance and Mm -hmm. engagement and. I don't know, man, but it's... brain health and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, brain. If there's a fountain of youth, it's resistance training, plus Mm -hmm. walking, I'm telling you. Yeah. All right. Um, Oh, I got a question from a listener uh, about... uh, There was a little audio clip that I gave to donors who participated in our fall funds drive a couple years ago about boosting testosterone, and I bring this up because a colleague also asked me about this. Like, how do you boost testosterone? You know, he's he's my age. Testosterone's dipping a bit. And uh, basically, my colleague was saying, do supplements work? You know, so uh, mm. this is tough. Generally, I'd say no. <laughs> the mm-hmm. er- The herbal stuff, he's like, is there anything new with, you know, there was Vitex, there was uh, tribulus, uh, mm-hmm. there were a couple different herbs that claimed to boost testosterone. The truth is, regular eating is one of the best things I think you can do, because it keeps up your LH, and listeners, if you're not familiar, it's a precursor to you know basically tell your gonads to make testosterone. Um, but regular eating is a good idea, keeping your dietary fat intake up, because I've seen in the literature repeatedly 15% reductions in testosterone if you go on a really low-fat, high-fiber diet, and that's what a lot of health authorities would tell you to do, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there goes your testosterone when it's already sagging. So we did a little mini audio seminar, and you know what? It's fair. I could offer that to people who want to become supporters this fall. We're going to kick off our fall funds drive anyway, so... I don't know, uh, Mike, have you heard anything about, you know, gold nugget tips for boosting your testosterone?
2: No, not really. I mean, there's yeah. Yeah, some supplements, maybe some stuff with like stinging nettle and other that kind of stuff. But in actual human studies on finished products, there's really not much. I mean, if you look at some of them, yeah, design's not the greatest. And you're talking like a small percentage. And then the other thing to keep in mind, too, because I looked this up a while ago, was that if you're, let's say, in the healthy range, right, and you go from, you know, mid-level to high-level, so you go from 500 to, say, 800, which statistically is a a massive difference Mm -hmm. uh, from a strength and hypertrophy standpoint, does that make any difference? Because you're still in the normal range. It's not like you're, you know, completely hypogonadal and you're not, you know, super uh, physiologic levels. And I could... Only find one study from Bashin, like back in the late 90s, who did a lot of interesting steroid research, but in general what they did is he took a group of humans, so males and not rats, and they used a the drug to chemically castrate them and then they replaced their testosterone back at different levels so that way they could control where they ended up. And it didn't seem to matter in that study, again, it's only one study, that if you were you know mid-level to mid-high in terms of acute strength and hypertrophy and that type of thing. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even if you can boost it a little bit, I don't know if it's going to matter that much. And then the stuff from uh, Dr. David West, who's from Stu Phillips' lab, looking at acute changes in testosterone after exercise. And, yep, they do go up after, like, squats and things of that nature. But in a couple of studies that they've done, they did not show any difference in uh, hypertrophy And they did a cool model where they used the same person. So they would squat and then do their right arm, and then one other day they would do their right arm first and then squat, right? So they flipped the order. So the arm got, you know, the high testosterone condition and then did not, but on the same individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least from the acute changes in testosterone due to exercise, they did not see any difference. Yeah,
0: I know that some of the NSCA materials will also talk about increased expression of testosterone receptors for, uh, what, 48 hours after a strength training So, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. It's worth pointing out for for endocrinology, right? More hormone Mm -hmm. or more receptors for the hormone. Um, Just things to consider. Phil, I don't know if if this ever comes up with you. People want to boost their... I mean, there's even psychological ways, I would imagine, Mm -hmm. you could temporarily change your testosterone. (laughs) You know, facial expressions, watching porn. (laughs) I mean, I I don't know what... um, when the rubber hits the road, what kind of conversations happen in the gym, or
1: do they? No, definitely. I think the main one I get is people that are that are aging. You know, guys that are hitting forty, fifty years old, and I tell them to go get tested. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: So, I mean, that's really the best way to do it. And, yeah, if you're really yeah. hypochondriacal, go get on the
0: real stuff. I mean, yeah. the gel is not the so. taboo that it used to be.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. And last quick point, too, that stress and lack of sleep, which is extremely common, will crush your testosterone level if both those things are chronic. Yep. When I was doing my PhD, I had mine measured, and I was entirely hypogonadal for a long time.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow, yeah.
2: Yeah, just from lifestyle stuff.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that audio, uh, and again, we can make that a freebie for people who want to step up for the fall funds drive, but it does talk about a lot of that sort of thing, too. Lack of sleep, alcohol will drive it down, you know, um, that sort of thing, so. Uh, Next up, this is a similar question about do these supplements work, but um, this just came up during the week uh, at the university, but do appetite boosters work, uh, and I was actually showing a picture in class. I found a picture of a product that was really, it was nothing but a multivitamin. It was n- not impressing me at all, right? <laughs> so, like with the testosterone boosters, my opinion of appetite boosters, I'm talking about just over the counter herbal or, you know, nutrient based stuff. I don't think they do much. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think, Phil?
1: No, I agree. I mean, there's some things out there that are that are not exactly legal that do. Oh, right. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <the> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, other than that, I mean, I think your best choice is food choices, you know, things that are easily digested exactly. versus things that aren't, Yep. you know, don't go cram down a pound of broccoli. If you're wanting to be hungry in an hour or two, <laughs> you know, and things like that. So, yeah. Um, what about you, Mike? Any, um, thoughts on the appetite boosters?
2: Uh, I've never, <laughs> so far I haven't seen any good data on that. Yeah. Um, like, I think like you guys have talked about – I know you've talked a lot about this a lot in the past and Phil has too that you know, changing the type of calories like you mentioned with the broccoli and just making things more liquid and possibly adding a little bit more fat and things that are mm-hmm. easier to consume is probably the best way to go and not really trying to look to boost your appetite per se.
0: I remember there was a, there was a med used clinically years ago called Megase. I, I don't know if that mm. was like if somehow marijuana-based. Um, listeners will probably – Write in and say, "Oh, dummy! Don't you remember?" But uh, there are some drugs, yeah, and I, I think that basically they're they're somehow marijuana derived because that'll mm-hmm. be munchies. Um, let me offer one thing that's sort of related to this. Uh, there was a paper that just came out, and again, it just sort of rolled off of that question about appetite boosters. This, I mean, just came out september of this year so this is only weeks old by green and colleagues in the journal appetite it says uh the title here is metabolic endocrine and appetite related responses to acute and to daily milk consumption in healthy adolescent males so what they did was uh they did two experiments one was more acute and one was more chronic they took uh Young men that were in their late teens, so 15 to 18 years old. Um, let's see. They participated in an acute experiment and completed two laboratory visits where they, they're essentially comparing milk with fruit juice. Okay. Uh, their body mass index was in the low 20s, so it's not like they're little twinky little kids here. Um, <laughs> the chronic experiment lasted 28 days. They measured appetite, metabolism, and endocrine responses at regular intervals. Eating behavior was quantified uh, by ad libitum, you know, or choose as you will, assessment under laboratory conditions and in free living environments with weighted, uh, weighed food records. Here's the deal. Acute milk stimulated glucagon release and reduced ad libitum, again, by choice, energy intake relative to fruit juice. And, again, that supports what Phil just said, right? If you chug fruit juice, your blood sugar will go up and crash, and you're hungry again as opposed to mm-hmm. milk, which is going to clot in your stomach and slow you down, and then you don't want as much. Chronic milk intake reduced free living energy intake at the follow-up visit. It says, whereas the opposite was apparent for fruit juice. And then, finally, and this is what a lot of people might find interesting, I do. Relative to baseline, chronic milk intake increased the insulin response to both breakfast and a mid-morning snack whilst, mm. whilst attenuating blood glucose. So listeners, if you think about this, normally your blood glucose goes up, your pancreas goes on overdrive, secretes a bunch of insulin, and it, it drives your blood sugar back down. So you're in a situation that's high insulin and high blood sugar. But what milk is doing is it's sort of tickling your pancreas to secrete extra insulin, but you don't have a ton of blood sugar at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I suppose the doctor, Dr. Frankenstein approach would be, hey, I get this nice anabolic hormone secreted, but I don't end up with a ton of building blocks for body fat floating mm-hmm. around in my bloodstream at the same time, right? I don't know. Mike, what do you think about that?
2: Um, Possible, I guess. And then, it's just a th- the more th- I've looked... Yeah, the more I look into insulin and glucose response, the more I'm like, I don't even know if I know anything. But mm-hmm. I think some of that may be, I think you may have said in the study too, did that have a glucagon release also in addition yes. to insulin too? Correct. Yeah, so that might be part of it. And then uh, for listeners, there's also insulin has two different uh, releases. The first part is what's called the cephalic or more nervous system driven. And the second part is actually a little bit longer. And then the last part too, I've realized that I think The insulin release is much more variable than what we realize. So, a lot of studies now I look at what is the time course that they pulled it. And a lot of the new studies are doing much shorter, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But classically, it was like every, you know, half hour, maybe every hour, depending on how much money you had to spend on labs for your study. I think we kind of miss a lot then when we're trying to draw that area under the curve.
0: Yeah, my thoughts on insulin is always a. Unlike testosterone, which we just discussed, is hard to boost up and down more than maybe ten or fifteen percent. Insulin can swing hugely; it's under Mm. your control. Oh, massive! And yet, and it's a it's a muscle accreting kind of hormone. I hesitate to just say anabolic or anti catabolic, but let's just say you know when you pull insulin out of the picture, people lose a lot of both muscle and fat. I've seen that in the lab. So it's indiscriminate right I always think of an insulin like this jekyll and hyde hormone where mm-hmm. it, you build muscle but you can it's also a storage <laughs> hormone you're gonna it's gonna prevent you know lipolysis and mm-hmm. and fat reduction and, and things like that but it's interesting though that they're using this they're comparing the fruit juice to the milk um because in the milk condition again you're not swinging your blood sugar you're just getting the insulin response and I could tell you one thing that does partly affect testosterone function, is if you have higher insulin concentrations in your blood, it reduces the binding proteins that bind up testosterone. And, you know, again, in theory, that might help your testosterone work a little bit better. Uh, Maybe this all just comes back to, you know, chug milk and eat plenty if you want to get big. I don't
1: know. Um, Well, that's what I was going to add in, too, is just having people learn to, a lot of people lose their appetite because they get in this horrible downward spiral of just not eating from losing weight and they choose instead of like eating smart they just choose the old-fashioned way of i'm just not going to eat and now they have no appetite and they have also have no metabolism (laughs) yeah yeah so it's just teaching them how to how to start eating again i've seen that numerous times while i ate more and magically you know a month later now i'm more hungry and I can eat more and it's kind of this upward spiral up. So I don't know, like a reverse diet when after a bodybuilder's mm-hmm. done a show. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to add it back on and oh here comes the appetite again. Yeah.
2: Um so Yeah. And that's the hard part is that these things are not static. Yeah. And so people would not sort of logically think that eating more would make them hungry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if you pull most people on the street and you go, Hey, if you ate more, do you think you'd be more hungry? Like, huh? But mm-hmm. like you guys said, under certain conditions, especially like when people are doing a reverse diet, you know, they start eating more and they're like, oh, my God, I want to eat everything. Yes. You know, because yeah. they were so low and so depleted. So mm-hmm. it depends on the state that you're in before. Yes. And, and it's it's very dynamic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, even your gut will atrophy and hypertrophy with use yeah. up to some mm-hmm. extent. release.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, this study by Green and colleagues, they're not trying to over conclude here because it's it's tempting to say so should i drink extra milk because it looks like it curbs my (laughs) appetite you know it it might help with this anabolic hormone uh, but it might curb my appetite um i don't know i I think a lot of this is also behavioral Mm -hmm. you know you just uh we had darren willoughby on the show and he he said i love milk i drink tons of milk you know and (laughs) and that might be a special (laughs) scenario for him but um Phil, are you a big milk drinker? Can can you drink milk?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I drink milk. Right now I don't. I'm on my freaking diet, so I don't eat a lot of it, drink a lot of it, but I'm getting yogurt and things like that at night. Um, But yeah, yeah, I mean, I like milk. I've always loved milk. Um, I don't, I'm not like one of the, I'm going to drink a gallon a day, you know, I just, you know, (laughs) I'll just have some, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm a daily dairy eater, I suppose, or drinker. Mm -hmm. I could see on a diet. Yeah, I would do that too.
0: You know, there's an old school, like bodybuilder rule, like don't. Don't consume too much dairy and grains, you know, when you're dieting. And it's probably partly related to this insulin release thing, I would think. It's one of those things that's hard to tease apart, right? Because if it's if it's not a high glycemic food item, it doesn't spike mm-hmm. your blood sugar, but it is very insulinemic. And like I said, everybody's just, I think, have to sort of decide for themselves how it affects them. I got to be careful because I could tell you I don't have cow's milk uh, in the morning. If I had a bowl of cereal with milk – I'm going to be on the couch asleep in, in mm-hmm. sixty to ninety minutes, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know if that just suggests that I'm old and insulin resistant or what, but. Um,
2: yeah. I mean. But I've seen some people react rather poorly to dairy, and it doesn't bother other people. Mm-hmm. So if you're unfortunately, I've seen uh, as a while ago a guy who did the was it the go mad where you just drink tons of milk mm-hmm. and squat. And, oh, my gosh, he had a horrible reaction to dairy. Mm-hmm. I said, well, how's your digestion? He's like, oh, it's just horrible. Like, you didn't want to be in a room with him for more than like a half hour. <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe you should cut back on the milk. He's like, well, but this is what I have to do. I'm like, well, there's other methods you can do too. It's yeah. clearly not agreeing with your digestion. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
0: yeah I, I don't too. have any gastric problems with milk. I, it just <laughs> makes me so sleepy I, I can barely
1: uh-uh. deal with it. I, I think the, 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 the reason for me is it's just – Normally, I'm looking for easy calories, and now I'm not looking for easy calories. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's easy to slam a glass of milk. Yeah, exactly. Right.
0: You know, the flip side of this, of course, is, you know, I don't think I'm going to tell people to go chug fruit juice to get hungrier, but there is something to be said. We said, I think, in years past, like, yeah, like you said, eat something easily digestible and then be hungry again 90 minutes later. It's a good way to start that upward spiral, maybe.
1: Yeah. You know, like
0: play with it. Play with your uh, blood sugar, blood sugar, sex magic. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. So there's that. And I know we got a a fairly lengthy listener question. It was about diet and lifting stuff. Uh, Phil, you have that?
1: Yeah, I got it right here in front of me. He asks every question in the book. So Um, basically he started lifting, ran in high school. He was 150 pounds in the last year and a half. He's worked his way up to 195. So 45 pounds in a year and a half, which is pretty good. Um, That's very yeah, good. Yeah. So um, he travels a lot. He just had a bunch of questions about how to, uh, you know, how to work out when you're on the hotel at a hotel and how to work out suggestion routines and things like that. Um, all that is very dependent on the person. I don't know how much you travel and things like that. If you only travel very briefly and then just don't worry about it. You know, if you're traveling all the time, yeah, you need to figure something out. Um, you know, go to a gym, but as far as routines go, man, there's, there's, uh, there's tons out there and he's like, some are decent, some aren't. I would just say, go to somebody reputable. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't see them cited by many other places, <laughs> by many other people, they're probably not reputable. You know, if you go to somebody, you know, a coach that's been around a long time, then yeah, I mean, it's probably, probably good. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then we want to touch on the diet stuff more, um, which was just kind of how to how to eat when you're on the road. And basically, he's put on a lot of fat, too, with the 45 pounds, which, you know, one would guess you probably would. OK. Um, but uh, he understands the basics of a proper diet. But, you know, how do you go out to eat when you're with coworkers and also good f- foods to make at home and things like that um, to keep the fat down or even lose some? This all uh, these are open arm questions cuz we don't really know what you're eating now. If you're eating 80% crap and 20% good, flip-flop that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's the first thing I get people to do. I mean, the biggest yeah. difference in what I'm doing right now is just I'm having less, I'm having like no no junk. You know, whereas right. when I'm looking to gain, I have basically I eat what I'm eating now and then add on to that. You know, Phil, so, my, my brother
0: ran into this because he traveled a lot for business and stuff. And, you know, he and I used to lift. So he still eats like a lifter. And that can yeah. be a problem when you're only lifting once a week. You yes. Know? And um, so he'd be like, Lonnie, there's no way I'm going to turn down a big, juicy steak. Everybody's eating steak and potato. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, you know, the typical tricks are stuff like. Eat an apple or a protein bar before you go to the Uh restaurant, you know, half an hour before. Or uh, there's obvious things like get the salmon and vegetables. You know, that's Uh nobody's going to say, embarrassing, dude. What are you doing? You know, that's (laughs) delicious. It's perfectly acceptable socially. You could have like a big – I would do a lot of like grilled chicken salads with double the grilled chicken, Mm -hmm. like a grilled chicken Caesar salad or something. Uh, You know, but there is that trick about – popping something in your mouth a half an hour beforehand just to curb your appetite a little bit so you're not going nutso, you know, eating a steak Mm -hmm. and then washing it down with a big piece of pie or something.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, and a big point of that is just, I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't understand why. You're the ones eating it. Why do they care what you're eating? You know, and you're going to have to reach a point where if this is your goal, it's yours. They'll own it. Yeah, (laughs) and they can F off. Yeah. Yeah, you know. (laughs) And, I mean, even if you have to kind of be rude at some point, especially if it's some, you know, unsightly, somebody that's in less than great shape trying to say, why aren't you eating a steak? Well, eh, you know, maybe it's because I don't want to look like you. (laughs) You (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you I'm actually trying to better myself a little bit. And I I don't, I've I've never gotten that. I mean, because I'll go out to eat now. And, I mean, there's been times where I'm out to eat with friends and I just don't eat because where we're at just isn't fitting. Or I'd eaten, eaten just a little bit ago. And it's like, I'm yeah. okay with that. Yeah. I'll sit here and have a glass of tea and we can shoot the shit. No, that's, that's a good point. As a
0: general rule, like, if it's really sugary or deep fried, don't do that. And yeah. if that's all the restaurant offers... I don't know. You're, you know, eat something alternate. See, you know, it's junk. You know, Chris, you huh. remind me of what Chris Shugart every year he writes <laughs> that he republishes that article about his family coming home for the holidays. You know, yeah. and they're okay. like, "Dude, get a life!" And he's like, "What? Like you, you pudgy bastard?" You know, yeah. and, it,
1: you know <laughs> yeah. and and ninety percent of the time I eat that, but it's like right now I don't. So why do you care? You you you're getting yours. Yeah. Why do you care what I'm eating? Uh, you know why? Yeah. It's misery. Misery loves company. Yeah. They're like, be, then, be, a, be a train wreck like me. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's going to be the thing. I mean, I'd say just clean things up. You still need to, if you're looking to hold on to that 195 pounds, you need to still eat like a man. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you need to eat a lot, but just make sure it's mainly good stuff and, and keep working hard. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And it's okay. Like, I still have the steak. Don't get the frickin', you know the the broccoli that's mainly cheese. Yeah. Get the broccoli that's broccoli. Yeah, you know and and things like that. Um, you
0: know the it, secret, the the in it's not the theory, it's the practice. The theory is yeah. sound. Eat lean meats and lots of vegetables, and you're yeah. going to have an awesome physique. You know, yeah, for the it most
1: just part. is. Yeah. I mean, that's what we'll still go out to eat, and that's what I do. I mean, it's like I I can have a steak and some vegetables. You know, I'll just get the seasonal vegetables and a salad instead of the baked potato with sour cream butter. And, cheese, and bacon, bacon and everything. Sour like cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's still a good meal. And, you know, but.
2: And then the part, too, I tell clients, I just had this discussion yesterday with one of them that most of the time, if you're going out for a social setting or a business meeting or things of that nature, you usually know well ahead of time. Yeah. You know, and if you've gone out with a group of, let's say it's a, a business thing or something, you have a little bit less control. You generally know the type of restaurants you're going to end up at, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not like you had absolutely no idea and they dragged you to this place and forced the potato down your face or something yeah. like that, you know. And so I tell them that if you know that's coming and you know you're going to have, let's say, the potato with the steak, then you know maybe you just have much better choices the rest of the time during yeah. the day. And you already know that that's your limit. That's what you're going to have for dinner. And then mm-hmm. just have that and not worry about it. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, if there's a I mean, problem it's, yeah.
0: it's more fast food, I think, cuz fast food's built around low quality greasy meats oh, and yeah. refined carbs. You know, yeah. fast food's often the bigger problem than a sit down restaurant, I would think. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, there's always a good choice you can make there. And I mean, that's it's my anniversary tomorrow and I'm on this diet. What am I going to do? I'm going to do like a backloading type thing. I'm going <laughs> to what I have, I'm going to limit what I have the rest of the day and yeah. then we're going to go over have whatever the hell I want. Yeah, go Yeah. Ahead, so fun. for one day, it's not going to kill me. Right. No. You know. No exactly. It, that's my rule over the
0: holidays too. You know, you just don't make it a 30 to 60 day yeah. you know donut yeah. cookie yeah. fest, you know, yeah. you just You have fun on Thanksgiving, man. What I eat would shock
1: people. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, I never got that. The whole I gained twenty five pounds over the holidays. It's two dinners. That's right. It's Christmas and Thanksgiving. How did you gain twenty five pounds? Yeah. (laughs) Because you went from you went from
0: Halloween candy, you know, to pumpkin pie, and then right into the you know fruit cake for Christmas.
1: Yeah, yeah. but
0: office parties, leftovers. Okay, real quick before we go to break, uh, because we're kind of running long here. Uh, again, I mentioned that we're going to have a fall funds drive. We're going to start that off. October is upon us. So uh, generally that's $4 a month for supporting listeners, supporting members. You can do that through ironradio.org. It's just a PayPal link. It's all very legitimate. Uh, and again, like I always say, that's less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees. And I mm-hmm. know the people who support their show now, you're, you are why you're hearing me right now. <laughs> right the server all that stuff the software you know that kind of stuff so i i want to constantly appreciate the existing supporting members you know who you are and mm-hmm. you make this happen uh, but we're going to open it up to other people this fall also if you're a new listener through youtube if you're listening through youtube i just ran a youtube ad um because I don't have time to work work the social media So I <laughs> took the lazy man's approach I ran an ad And there are a few thousand people taking a look at Iron Radio So if you're listening Just know that through YouTube It's more of just a convenience As I've said before If you're going to listen to your Xbox or your Roku or something It's just audio, right? I don't really have any plans to do anything more than that um, But if you just want to you know, Hit a YouTube app on your phone Or something like that You don't like iTunes It's just an alternative Mm-hmm. And it's something that we can do quickly. So welcome, though. And then uh, lastly, we had Sean the intern on a couple of times. Uh, my, one of my hopes for him before he got sucked into clinical uh, dietetics rotations was to handle some of the tweets. Uh, but I, I do get, you know, I can check tweets during the show. So if anybody, if you're up at 8 Central on Saturday mornings or 9 a.m. Central, oh, I'm sorry, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Saturday mornings you can tweet us uh, I'm at lawnman man uh, seven on Twitter and I'll handle those so if we're talking about something and you have something to say tweet at lawn seven and I'll I'll mention what you're saying during the discussion like today we're gonna talk about bench pressing so mm-hmm. it's just a way to get a little more interactive maybe you yeah. know okay uh, we're gonna go to break and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk uh, talk about benching bench pressing across different sports You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob. I just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, Uh, That would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? All right, folks, we're back. We're going to talk about bench pressing. We have uh, Dr. Nelson and Coach Stevens and myself, Lonnie Lowry. And, uh, you know, when you go to workshops, you go to different sorts of events, oftentimes there's guys out on the floor showing people, you know, how to put 20 pounds on their bench just through technique. Like literally they can leave that same day and they're, they're mm-hmm. better at what they're doing. So uh, I've got a couple of questions. I'm going to bounce off these gentlemen. And the first one, uh, Phil, let's start with this. Like Mm -hmm. what are the listeners options, whether it's grip type, grip width, what you do with your back, your feet, maybe just maybe run down some of the, the basic things that you can manipulate as a coach.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, what I do generally at a seminar or anything else is I'll teach people the basics to a good, solid bench press. Um and then if they want to go further we'll go into powerlifting type stuff. I don't take everybody that far unless they tell me they want to be a powerlifter. But what I what I'm looking for is proper grip width. Um for the general population it's not like a really wide powerlifting grip. Um I'm looking for the elbow to be in line with the wrist um and generally too wide is a little bit tight on your shoulders but the main thing we're looking for is um scapular retraction during the whole lift which is a hard one for people to get Mm -hmm. Um, for some reason they always want to you know externally rotate their shoulders and that's just not good for them so that's the one thing i teach and then it's just be planted on the floor um you know butt shoulders feet all planted and just generally tight um is what i'm looking for in a basic bench press and then we change their bar path a little bit from your your standard bodybuilding bench press which is like elbows way out um where you're using it to isolate the pecs, you know, mainly is what a lot of bodybuilders use it for to a, a little bit more of an elbow tucked in, looking to incorporate the shoulders and triceps a bit more. So, okay. um, that's what I do for gen pop. And then with my power lifters, I mean, we train much the same way during off season and then I'll change them up and we'll go into like, like a wider competition grip close to the season. And that's because, you know, I don't know many power lifters now who don't have bad shoulders and I think a lot of that, just from talking to them, is attributed to the ultra-wide yeah. you know, competition benches. Mm-hmm. So we train most of our off-season in, in, in a position that's a lot nicer to our shoulders. And it's a little harder. It's harder to move bigger weights that way. But arguably, I think it could make you stronger. So mm-hmm. and, and hopefully, our longevity is a little bit more. I wish I changed a lot older. I think my my shoulder issues are a lot from that that always benching in competition mode type of thing oh yeah uh, so and then like I said then we go further from there um, and you start teaching the nuances of leg drive and things like that which the average person just doesn't need to know it you know because they're using it more of a, as a you know an upper body mass builder really when when you're looking at it it's not a competition move to them they don't need to bench 500 pounds
0: it's not their event
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not an event to them mm-hmm. and honestly I don't I think the bench press is is very very overrated as far as 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 far as the competition move, unless you're a power lifter, like my athlete athletes, when when I say athlete, I mean like football players, baseball players, wrestlers, things like that. We do much more overhead than we do than we do bench pressing. Yeah, so I mean it's safer and it's more applicable to sport. So
0: you know, Phil. On a similar note, uh, I know it's arguable, and listeners might want to smack me for this, but we've had whole shows on whether bodybuilding is really a sport. I mean, but. Um, i 've done the same thing with dumbbells. i'd rather just use dumbbells because you could supinate, you mm-hmm. could get more stretch yes. you know uh, you could do a mm-hmm. lot of things with them, whereas just straight bench pressing just grinds the hell out of my my shoulders yeah, and that doesn 't happen with barbells mm-hmm. you know and even when uh-huh. I hurt my triceps tore my triceps, I was able to get back into moving a little bit heavier loads with the dumbbells you know so maybe it 's the the way people are built anatomically as well has a
1: well, I think it's yeah. the most abused lift too. It's the it's the one lift you'll walk into any gym and you'll see you know bro lifters like grinding out these ugliest lifts, and their other dude like yelling, "You got this! It's all you!" <laughs> and I mean, their shoulders are flaring out there. I'm just waiting for something to explode, and it's acceptable, you know. Yeah. Whereas you, you wouldn't see them do that on a squat, you know. And arguably, maybe a little safer um, as far as an injury is about to happen. So, I mean, I, I keep people well within the realm of ability and we slowly build from there. I mean, shoulders, shoulders are very complex. And I mean, I would, probably the most injured thing in the gym is, is the shoulder. So, I mean, I try and play safe with that thing. And for my athletes, we do use it, but it's more of a, an upper body mass builder and not like a pure strength move. Um, I think bench is great for that. I mean, if you're doing it right, you get lat involvement, tricep involvement, shoulder involvement, uh, pec involvement. So you get all that involved, whereas in overhead press, you know, arguably there's like zero pec involved. Um, right. Yeah. All right. Know. Well, let me, let me fire
0: one or two more because I know you've got to um, get Phil, and then we'll turn to Dr. Yep. Nelson. What about things like rep speed, pauses, bar holds? Do you change the rep speed, or do you do anything different with someone who's an athlete versus someone who's purely like a strength and muscle sport?
1: Yeah, generally. All my athletes move things quickly most of the time. Okay, yeah. So I'm always looking for a tight um, – uh, we're looking for tightness and you know, a consistent bar speed going down um, and then explode up. So, I mean, we're looking to build tightness and the same thing in the squat and things like that. My athletes' uh, speed kills. You know, it doesn't matter if he can bench 450 if he can't move 315 fast. You know, if I've got a lineman that's having to punch somebody off the line and they're slow, well, that sucks. If they're just strong, so yeah, all my athletes were generally looking to move things fast, unless they're a pure endurance athlete, and then you know maybe not. Okay. But yeah, um. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then like me, I'm doing more of a body composition type training right now and I'll mess around with slower tempos and things like that. Like we talked about, was it last show about like the tissue assassin? Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. And it depends. I mean, that could, I could also take that place if I have an athlete that's looking to move up weight classes and things like that. So I might add in some more tempo work. And things like that, Negatives. just to purposely add mass. So I mean, it depends person to person what I'm doing. But as far as my like my competition athletes in season training for an event, we're always looking to move all our lifts fast, including including the bench press. Right. So, uh,
0: just quickly, uh, uh, something on bar path you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe fill in people on how you tweak the path of the bar as it as it moves upward.
1: Well, generally people are benching down to their almost their collarbone. And, you know, I teach more of the bottom of your sternum or what is it, the solar plexus or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we're lowering it more there. And and the best cue I've found over the years is not trying to – I'm literally trying to raise that to the bar, not drop the bar to me. So I'm not letting the bar come to me. I'm, I'm trying to come to the bar, and that has a tendency to get your upper back tight. Um, oh, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm literally trying to lift my rib cage to the bar, you tend to squeeze your scapula better and flex your lats, which kind of gets the job done that I'm trying to train because a lot of people just have no clue how to flex their lats. And we want to press off our lats. The same thing overhead. Any pressing I'm doing, you know, it's, it's teaching them to have a tight uh, upper back. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's more of a curved bar path. There's a slight arch to it. It comes down your body. And then as you're pressing up, it, it goes up, elbows flare, comes over your face. Right. So. Uh, one last one for you. So I know you
0: got a jet. Uh, what about incline? You talk about overhead pressing a lot. Are you a fan of
1: incline bench pressing? And if so, for who? Yeah, I mean, I think all my athletes. That's a good move. We don't do it probably near enough just because it's easier to have them stand up and press a bar overhead. But I think it's probably more applicable to sports. That's what it, I mean. I don't know why the bench press is used in like the NFL combine test because i think, I think it's horrible. <laughs> right. far, it 's horrible right it doesn 't apply to the field very well. You never see like a lineman running down the field standing straight up and like pushing people they 're always leaning over and it 's more of an overhead or an incline press mm-hmm. um, and there 's a, there's a lot more shoulder involved, and I think there 's a lot of people running around with weak shoulders out there, and you know both anteriorly and posteriorly, yeah. so I mean the more we can do to build those, the better. Um, and then the, the incline bench is going to do that. And generally it's, it's a little more humbling too. Um, it's harder. It is harder. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. um, but I mean, my biggest thing on bench would be telling people to drop the ego and try and do it right. Uh, you see, it's the most abused lift out there. Like I talked about earlier and you know, I'd like, I don't allow people to grind out lifts. If they miss it, we don't like put fingers on the bar and take five pounds off and let them grind it out. We take the bar. You know, it's like, no, you missed that shit, come back and try again. <laughs> you know, there's none of that. You got it, bro, it's yeah, all you. Yeah. Even though I'm doing a row. You know, and it's, it's so right, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a great move. I think it's overrated and overused. Um and I think the only people that should use it as regularly as they do is, is powerlifters. We have to because it's 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 an event. You know, I, let me offer something quick for, for uh, bodybuilders, too. I have, I don't
0: think I have ever, maybe rarely, seen bodybuilders with overdeveloped upper pecs, you know, the clavicular yeah. fibers of their pecs. Uh, so they could really be using some more incline benching, too. It's just it's not boastful when you got to cut your weight by 30% yeah. or something, you know, to do your incline work. Uh, but I, I see a lot of guys, you could almost see their ribs you know, as you move up their, their chest, mm-hmm. up their sternum. Uh, or, you know, as you get older, you can you become a little bottom-heavy. Gravity starts pulling everything down, including your pecs. So, <laughs> you know, do some upper pec work, for mm-hmm. God's sake. You know, do some incline work, you would think. And,
1: yeah, and honestly, I'm more of a fan, I think, of dumbbells or like a football bar as far as shoulder safety and where you can use a neutral grip. It just oh. seems mm-hmm. like I don't – you don't meet many people that have an issue with that. Yeah. Um, If you're able to go into a neutral grip with it.
0: Yeah. So. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Dr. Nelson, what about you? I think you know the most about anatomy from everybody on the show because you've done a (laughs) lot of cadaver work and all these workshops. And what about anatomical differences? Do you think people's individual anatomy varies enough to uh, affect movement selection?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the big one is obviously the arm length and you can get into where their insertion is and all that kind of stuff and what they're used to, but yeah, if you've got someone who's got a huge barrel chest and T-Rex arms, he's not going to bench press <laughs> the way as someone who's got very, you know, long arms and, you know, more slender torso. Um, so I think that there's like Phil was saying too, there's a <clears throat> tendency to Go too high up on the chest, or almost like uh, old school, they call it like a guillotine press, where you're coming down to the clavicle on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but even lifters back in the day, when they did that, that was for high reps and are very specific circumstances. Vince Gironda was big on that, but it wasn't for you know development of power or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I always look at you know kind of where is their structure, and then how well does it line up, and the bar path probably going to be a little bit different too. And like what Phil was saying, the the biggest mistake I notice is especially in the wrists. So a lot of people, the wrist will start coming back. And then I don't know how many times I've had people come over and they're like, I've got wrist pain, bench pressing. And, you know, that happens. And I'm like, well, is it both sides or one side? Like, Oh, no, it's only my left wrist. And then I'm thinking, ah, something's going on. When you watch them, especially on a heavy load, you'll see the wrist kind of go back because they can't even hold it in a a straight position. Yeah, hyperextended
0: like that. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah, and that just causes all sorts of problems with that really fast. I and it it's the load you can move.
0: You know, I have a problem keeping my wrist real straight, too. I do tend to mm-hmm. hyperextend a little bit, you know, when not on purpose. It's it's a bad habit, you know, but
2: Yeah, and it, that's pretty common. So, mm-hmm. a lot of times I've seen it's a grip strength issue also, it's a wrist strength, and then especially people forget it's the thumb, right? So if you've got that grip and you've got the thumb on the other side, The thumb is what's actually preventing the bar from rolling out and hopefully not crushing you. So if your thumb is weak in that kind of pinch position, you're going to want to shift that load back away from that uh, weak thumb.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Rob used to say, Lonnie, squeeze the bar, squeeze the shit out of the bar, you know, because I think he's trying to get me to use my thumb more. You know, sure. in, in a sense, yeah. as opposed to just sort of that open grip, you know, because I'll put, I'll, I'll really hyperextend my wrist and just let the bar float on the the meat of my palm, you know, like the thenar eminence there, and just kind oh, of, oh yeah, you know, that's um, that might be okay for some lighter weight hypertrophy work, but that's not good for trying to go heavy.
2: Yeah, the nice part is if you do switch to dumbbells, and I know you do a lot of dumbbell work too, it's it's much harder to have that happen as much because you have to have maintain independent control of that whole dumbbell, so it's less likely that you're going to go into that position. You're right. just going to kind of yeah. move your arm to line up a little better. Makes sense. Uh, here's one, and I've heard debates
0: about this over the years. Um, decline bench pressing. Do you,
2: what are your thoughts? I think it's worthless
0: yeah okay you know we're gonna agree on that so maybe tell everybody why i just
2: i don't understand it like it doesn't from a a mechanical standpoint right your torso is at such a steep incline so you're even if you look at like you're talking about the fiber arrangement on the pack and where it comes in most of it's going into basically the shoulder joint to use common terms and trying to shove that thing all the way out the other side and that's a very shallow joint you know, there's not much musculature to support it. The scapula mm-hmm. can't come out and line up. Um, people tend to use way too much load. Um, I just, I've never understood the point of it, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I- Other than it's a, it's a good ego lift. You know, you can right. load up yeah, more true. weight because you dramatically change the distance that you're moving it. Right. But other than that, I, <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't get it. Yeah,
0: bar path would be a big deal. If you're doing, like, straight off your your solar plexus, like Phil was saying, in a decline, you've cut your bar path in half, oh, yeah. probably,
2: as far as length, you know. Yeah, and I've never – maybe there's some competitive power lifters that have done this, but I've – even from that standpoint, I've never heard of one of them yet that says, oh, man, I, you know, I did a lot of that decline work, and my flat bench went up. I've never, <laughs>
0: never heard that. Right. And, you know, I feel had a good point. Watch NFL, especially linemen. What they do is an incline press yes. against each other. They're pushing up and out, you know, or like a sumo wrestler. They, they push up and out. When do you push down toward your knees, kind of? Uh, you know, almost never.
2: Yeah, um, it's a very odd movement. I don't like see it replicated anywhere else either from a yeah. sport perspective.
0: All right. Uh, last question of the day. Uh, what do you do with clients as far as... I, again, I, this is a cross sport, so it could be different for a, the powerlifter versus you know, an athlete or a bodybuilder. But um, stuff like bar holds and pauses, do you ever incorporate that kind of stuff? Do you think it somehow teaches your nervous system, hey, this is what 315 feels like if you've never done it before? Um, you know, what, what's your thought on that kind of thing?
2: Uh, I think so. I mean I've played around a little bit more with some static contraction stuff in the past and just a little bit more lately not with bench press or anything. Um, I have one guy I talked to who i work with who's trying to qualify for Raw Nationals and uh, he was doing a lot of pin presses so basically you can either do like an isometric version or you can start at different uh, joint angles so maybe you want to start four inches off your chest at a dead stop and press up or you can take a unloaded bar and do the opposite right so start at the bottom and then you're pushing up into the pins on the top It's more of an isometric type thing um, isometrics classically you only get a 10 to 15 degree carryover but I think there is something to being able to hold and support a heavy load and then I actually when they do that I look at obviously make sure the mechanics are good and then I have them watch their breathing because I eventually I want them to get to holding a heavy load and still being able to breathe so can they brace and then have more diaphragmatic contraction without losing all of their stability. That
0: makes sense, yeah. Especially
2: in things like Strongman or CrossFit where you're purposely doing reps. doesn't apply to powerlifting where you're just executing one rep. Um, So I have used them for a lot of those types of things and I think that's been very useful.
0: I think it's almost like walking and chewing gum at the same time kind of thing, right? Yeah, like if you can hold that heavy weight and remember to breathe, (laughs) you're almost telling yourself, I can handle this. Not this yeah, like and hold your breath,
2: Valsalva freak out. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's my marker for how to increase load. Also, right. So one of the things that I've changed in terms of just learning any new skill is um, watch their heart rate and watch their breathing. So eventually, yeah, it's going to go a little bit awry. Like so, I was doing some stuff. I bought the old school like gravity boots a couple of years ago, where you, you know hang upside down oh, like right. a bat, you know, in the cage. <laughs> yeah. Um and I first tried them, and I I could not even get out of the fetal position with them on. I was just like,
0: oh, um,
2: <laughs> just yeah. scared out of my mind. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple inches down. Okay, I'm just going to hold here. Wait till my heart rate goes down. Get my breathing under control, nice and relaxed. Go back up again. And then just started on a daily basis, just doing that. Wouldn't go any further than what my you know heart rate and breathing would tell me, because I'm trying to teach my nervous system that this position or this heavy load or whatever is really not that stressful, right? And if it's not that stressful, that means I can do more of it, right? So mm-hmm. I can kind of master that little position and then progress from there. And what I found by doing that, much more of a use stress model, you can get some pretty fast changes in a you know pretty good amount of time, short time, where if you go in and you just push that limit all the time, you'll still get an adaptation, but it, it just appears to take much longer. So you've kind of almost gone a little bit outside what you can handle instead of staying just inside that border. Right. You know, that may be uh, an issue as
0: we age. I don't want to say that Dr. Nelson's not a spring chicken, but this is not his first rodeo, right? <laughs> and it's the same thing with, like, I used to hang upside down from those inversion boots or whatever all the time yeah. in, when I was uh, in my 20s, never thought twice about it. But I went, uh, yeah, I was downstairs downstairs. And I was trying to hang from my knees, just, you know, putting my knees over the bar and hang oh, upside yeah. down. And listeners, if you try this, have a spotter. I don't want anybody to break their neck. Yes. You know, but yeah, I was a little panicky. Like you were saying, like almost like wanting to crunch into the fetal position. I'm like, I used to do this all the time. What have I lost, you know, by because of my office job, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and
2: so- I think it's a lack of visual and vestibular stimulation, and the other part that I totally forgot is that when you're hanging from your feet, one is the opposite of what you would normally do. And even if you're pretty good at doing you know, handstands or inversions that way, um, if you did them against a wall or you've got your hands on the ground, you have that sort of proprioceptive feedback. Mm-hmm. When you do the opposite and you just got the boots hanging and you're not touching anything else, you basically removed all that sort of markers that your nervous system using to figure out oh, where yeah. you're at. Yeah. So it's very much just gravity in the opposite sense and then tension in a weird way because it's pulling on your feet and then it's all uh, eyes and uh, vestibular. So sort of inner ear function at the same time. Right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, again, relevant to the bench press, of course, we're talking about just putting yourself in a position like, like Dr. Nelson says, sort of outside of your comfort zone. And yeah, you're, I mean, you're getting different type of proprioceptive feedback. You know, when you've got a, a near max load and you're sort of at lockout, and you just unrack it with a partner. You got to think that that's um, those sorts of nervous system changes. I think you're right. I don't think that it's going to take months of work, you know, for for that to sort of sink in a little bit, like being able to breathe in that situation and and stuff like that. So,
2: yeah, yeah and that's started. where you get into you know two board and three board presses and things of that nature. And you know, I've just seen some people get good carryover with that, some people don't. I mean, I don't do a lot of bench press stuff. Haven't really for the last three to four years, so I haven't coached a lot of people on it at all. Um, but I think the main benefit is obviously you get some range of you know motion work. But I think like you were saying, it's like being accustomed to taking that load, taking the hand off, having them you know hold that load. And I really in the past when I did it more, I would watch their eyes. So if I give them a nice hand off and they're holding it just at lockout before they get the command, if their eyes are like Super wide and look like they did, you know, two lines of cocaine beforehand. (laughs) It's probably not going to be good. But if they got it and you can see that they're focused, but they're more relaxed, probably going to be okay, you know. So that's how I would kind of gauge, you know, how far do we, you know, push them just acutely in a session, too.
0: All right, good stuff. Well, I think we covered some tips there. We got some stuff from everybody. Yeah, you know, like I said, it's one of those workshop type things where. You can pick up a lot about just the bar path or, you know, ways that we're bench pressing. And I do agree. I was never super bench presser. You know, I was never actually that excited about it compared to something like a squat. But uh, some people are really into it. And, you know, obviously, it's one of the big three in powerlifting. So there you go.
2: Yeah. And I think what Phil said, if you you really are into it and that's what you want to do and you want to take a powerlifting approach, then... (laughs) By all means, you know, find the best coach for powerlifting in your area and have them work with you because that's by far going to make the most massive difference.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that you do a lot. That I when, like, for example, you are talking about getting cues and feedback, you know, as you watch someone, like watching their eyes, you know, their wrists, all these different things. You need a, a separate pair of eyes. I know you sometimes use video as well, but yeah, yeah, getting somebody who's been there or done that very helpful
2: yeah and it's very different so i went to the the elite uh learn to train seminar a couple of years ago and obviously those guys there know how to teach powerlifting and that type of thing and oh my gosh like the one thing i walked away with was oh that's completely different to do it for powerlifting and the amount of tightness you need and just all those tiny things just you know do make a big difference if that's the route you want to go so yeah all
0: right good stuff well we yeah. uh, Again, listeners, we've got a fall funds drive kicking off, so take a look at ironradio.org. We appreciate either even one-time donations you know, but or monthly type things, and uh, we'll see everybody next time. See ya. Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.